0: Exclusive podcast from Impact 89 FM.
1: Conrad Gelpke is Cyclotron Lab Director and University Distinguished Professor at MSU. He joins us now on MSU Today and begins by telling us what the National Superconducting Cyclotron Lab is.
2: Uh, well, we are a laboratory for basic nuclear physics research. The fact that we're using superconducting cyclotrons is a technology. Which was invented some 20 years ago, which was very cost effective to achieve some of the science goals which we wanted to accomplish. Superconducting cyclotrons are accelerators which accelerate particles to high speed, in our case, to roughly half the speed of light, which is needed to initiate the nuclear reactions uh, which we need to study and which we also use to produce isotopes which are very short lived, so short lived that they normally cannot be found on Earth.
1: All right, before we go a little further into that, let's talk about the recent news where the director of the National Science Foundation was here to award your lab another $100 million. Talk a little bit about that, please.
2: Yes, that is, of course, very important for us because uh, without money we can't run the laboratory. The fact that we are getting a a substantial award of $100 million over five years means we will be able to do cutting-edge and world-class research for another five years at, at the very least. It uh, it is a testament to the fact that uh, our faculty, are first class, uh, that our technical staff is outstanding and that the laboratory is viewed as one of the premier facilities in the country to do rare isotope research. And that is actually acknowledged uh, by the National Science Foundation. We're very proud of it and we are, of course, very happy to get this award. And what makes us the best in the world at this? It's the people. Uh, You need good people, otherwise you can't move, and you, of course, need also a certain amount of organizational discipline, and uh, uh, you also have to have some good technologies and some good uh, ideas how to move the science forward, and I think we have a combination of all of it here, and that makes the laboratory special. A lot of
1: people have heard about the lab through the RIA project, rare Rare Isotope Accelerator Project, that was... You know, bubbling for a long time seems to have gone away, but where are are we with that? Is it still a viable project?
2: Uh, RIA, as it uh, was originally conceived, was uh, actually uh, sort of terminated by the Department of Energy, according to congressional testimony, and it's not clear whether it ever will be built. There may be some other facilities which could be built. So our current uh, planning is uh, uh, that we have to carry on the science, we have to develop alternative new plans, how to maintain our cutting edge and world leadership position. And we are just about to finish uh, a major document which uh, outlines our major ideas, how we want to carry the science forward. It will not be the rare isotope accelerator, which uh, right now uh, seems to be too expensive, We have a scale-down project, which is very attractive uh, and which uh, I think will still be one of the best facilities in the world if it gets built.
1: We hear a lot about the automobile business is not in a cycle this time. Michigan needs to reinvent its economy. How does the lab fit into that, moving Michigan forward into more of the knowledge economy or whatever you want to call it?
2: Well, we are for basic research. In that sense, we are not really a producer of applied gadgets. However, uh, having said that, a laboratory like ours always attracts the brightest and the best people in the world who always have some other ideas. We have some of the most gifted teachers. We train some of the brightest students. Uh, We also have technical spin-offs once in a while, although that's not the main purpose why uh, we do our research. But uh, uh, the laboratory, for example, has built a number of... Uh, machines uh, which are now used for treating cancer patients uh, in the United States and also overseas.
1: And would you talk,
2: please, about the
1: impact the lab has on the just international science community?
2: Yes, we are a national, actually, uh, we're we're the premier rare isotope user facility in the United States. Let me explain what that means. It means that anybody who has a bright idea can write a proposal to the laboratory to do research here. Actually, our faculty are just uh, like any other user abroad. If they want to use our machine for their research, they have to go through the same process and the same peer-reviewed evaluation, uh, which is done by an external committee of experts. So we, we bring in some international advisors who are sort of the top of the crop, if you want to say it like this, and they come up uh, with a ranked order of which experiments should go forward. So in in that sense, we are part of the fabric of the international science community. Uh, Of course, the international people are coming here, only a, a a modest fraction of the scientists are coming here. Most people who come here to do their research are from the United States.
1: The National Superconducting
2: Cyclotron
1: Laboratory is on the campus of MSU, so I imagine you have students involved a lot in the lab. And is that undergrads all the way up to PhDs?
2: Yes, uh, we are actually very proud of this uh, and it is uh, a very unique situation for a major laboratory to be housed on a university campus. That gives us the opportunity to have a nearly unique and ideal synergy between research and education. The students can go to classes and uh, an hour later they are back at the laboratory doing hands-on research. They really get the best training you can think of and that of course makes us uh, very special and also very enthusiastic about the work we're doing. Uh, the laboratory has about hundred students on its payroll at any time which again is, is very unique. We are the largest campus-based nuclear physics facility in the country. We're training about 10 percent of all nuclear physics PhDs and uh, we also are ranked uh, number two behind MIT which is not a bad spot to be at uh, uh, in, in graduate education in, in nuclear physics, uh, about half of our students are graduate students, and the other half is undergraduate students. So the, gra- uh, the graduate students, of course, are working on their on their thesis research. The undergraduate students we incorporate into the laboratory in various functions. So they do real work in a in a research laboratory. Some do research, some do technology, some do assembly, some do design, others do computing and computer maintenance. So we train a lot of Students uh, in in the re- in a real world experience, uh, uh, and I think that is a very useful thing to do. How about K through twelve
1: students? Do they ever get a chance to interact with the lab?
2: Yes, uh, are, a number of our faculty are going out to high schools and uh, volu- volunteer work. Talk about the cyclotron. We give tours to uh, school schoolchildren, uh, typically of the order of two thousand. People come through the laboratory every year, every year and organize to us, sort of small groups, and uh, they get uh, uh, a small video to look at, and they can see what, how research is done. Uh, we also participate in a number of university activities to reach out to, to students, middle school and, and high school students, uh, to attract them into the sciences. And also we have summer internships. So uh, that, that's what a typical university does, and we're part of that fabric.
1: This is MSU Today, and we're visiting with Dr. Conrad Gelbke of MSU's National Superconducting Cyclotron Laboratory. And let's get back to a little bit about what actually goes on here. Try to describe to us laypeople a little bit about what the superconducting is, what goes on at the lab, and, and what do you hope to find out? Okay.
2: Now, superconducting means it's a, it's a technology. Uh, if one wants to build particle accelerators, one has to have gadgets which bring the particles up to very high speed. In our case, uh, superconducting means that uh, we build machines, cyclotrons, uh, which bring the particles up to high energies, which have to contain the particles in magnetic fields. And we create these magnetic fields with huge electromagnets, which one could do with normal copper wires, and these would be extremely cumbersome and, and, and very heavy devices. If one goes with modern technology, superconducting wires, uh, you can make the magnets much smaller. You save a lot of money. They're not not as clumsy. And and they're very elegant and and inexpensive to build. So that is why we are called a superconducting cyclotron laboratory. The research which we're doing addresses uh, mainly uh, two two large themes in science. One is, uh, what is the origin of the elements uh, we are made of? Uh, where, where is the oxygen, the hydrogen, the carbon, the nitrogen and the iron and the gold made in the universe uh, which then was uh, coalescing into our solar system. We have some crude ideas uh, but the details aren't really known and the reason why they're not known is we know that stars make these elements as they are sort of evolving. They, 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 they do nuclear physics in their interiors but the nuclear physics goes through steps uh, of isotopes or particular forms of elements which are so short-lived that we don't have them on earth and if we want to understand what happens inside a star we have to know those properties of of those intermediate nuclei. We have the technology and the means to produce some of them not all we would need a better machine uh, to do all of them and by studying them we put a solid foundation on any theoretical efforts to try to uh, to understand what's happening out in the cosmos. Now that's very important, for example, uh, if we look at the broad context of space exploration. We're building space-based telescopes. We can study what are the elemental compositions in distant stars. And if we want to make sense of that, we have to understand how those stars evolve and how they come about. And So so we are providing the uh, nuclear physics underpinning uh, for, for anybody who wants to understand uh, what these observations, for example, with a Hubble telescope mean. And how we would interpret them. Now, apart from that, there is a a more broader, uh, deeper, non-applied science question, namely, uh, how do we understand the forces which make a nucleus and and keep it together? Um, We had, in the past, access to a few stable isotopes and, and their neighbors but we know that there are many many more isotopes which are uh, only short-lived, which uh, have very unusual compositions and also very unusual shapes and structures and uh, part of the basic nuclear physics mission of the laboratory is to produce some of these very short-lived isotopes, uh, uh, isolate them, bring them to an experiment and study their properties. For example, uh, we've recently uh, measured the properties of a particular calcium isotope, which is very short-lived. It only lives for about a tenth of a second, and we measured its weight, its mass, uh, to an extremely high precision. If I would compare the precision uh, to measuring the weight of a truck, it was would be like uh, we would measure the weight of a truck to a degree of precision that we would know whether, driv- whether the driver left the $10 bill inside the truck or not. And that had to be done basically uh, within uh, a tenth of a second because the truck would be gone after a tenth of a second and this isotope was gone in, in a tenth of a second. Just to give you an example of, of the of the technologies we're doing here.
1: Is there anything important I've left out or, or just a final thought you'd like to leave people with about NSCL if there was one thing or two?
2: Well, the one thing which I always like to stress is uh, the NSCL is really a set of people Uh, who are all working extremely well together. Uh, I think the atmosphere is extremely enthusiastic and collegial and uh, uh, we just have an outstanding set of people, high quality researchers, high quality technologists and technicians and they all work very focused as a team and that's really what makes the laboratory so special. So it's it's a lot of fun to to be here on campus on on such a special place. Last question sir, I mean just it's kind of big, but I'd like to hear
1: your thoughts. I mean, what is sort of the state of science right now? I mean, particularly, is the United States still kind of leading the charge in all the important research we need to do? Just how do you feel, and and then maybe even how it filters down into schools, and are we learning what we
2: need to learn about science? Well, I'm, I'm obviously a, th- a scientist and enthusiastic about science. The United States is still one of the best countries to do science. I think... Uh, uh, the science we're doing is very expensive and the priority setting process is always very complicated and we wish there would be more investments. But in the net, I think what what is really important uh, that we have universities like Michigan State University or like MIT or Columbia University to get, or, or Yale or Princeton who, who are really pushing the scientific frontier. And we let the scientists really develop their ideas to the best of their abilities and, and pursue them. That is actually very special, that we don't have a lot of uh, hindrances, uh, uh, hindrances to, to pursue our research. And so I, I'm, I'm very enthusiastic about it. Obviously, uh, science at other countries is also growing. The international competition is becoming a very serious issue for us. Uh, For example, our laboratory will stay at the cutting edge probably for another five to ten years. But the competition abroad is investing huge amounts of of resources and money into the research we're doing. And unless we are uh, building a major new capability on our campus, we will fall behind. So while we're doing very well now, uh, we have to also think about what we should do 10 years down the road, and that's one of the important things we, we're right now addressing. I think the next five years are great, but we have to take also a longer-term perspective, and uh, that has to sort itself out over the next year or so.
1: That's Conrad Gelpke, director of MSU's National Superconducting Cyclotron Laboratory. For much more on the web, visit www.nscl.msu.edu. And this is WDBM East Lansing Impact Radio from the campus of Michigan State University. And it's Spartan Podcast on the web at spartanpodcast.com. For more MSU Today, visit us on the web at msutoday.com. With your Friday Night
0: Insight Weekly News Recap, I'm Alex Rusciano. For the first time since 1994, the Democrats have gained control of both the House and the Senate after this week's national elections. This new status for the Democratic Party has given them a new influence over President Bush's policies, domestically and internationally, with the war in Iraq making the top of the list. When the Republican senator in Virginia, George Allen, conceded to Democrat Jim Webb, the Democrats picked up the seat they needed in the Senate, now having a 51-49 to advantage. With this new change, Rep. Nancy Pelosi, a Democrat from California, is on the verge of becoming the first woman to serve as Speaker of the House. Also, Bush nominated John R. Bolton to the post of U.N. Ambassador again, and Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld resigned. And the election in 2008 seemed even closer, as Tom Vilsack, the Democratic governor of Iowa, announced he was running for president. And in the Big Mitten, Democratic Governor Jennifer Granholm stepped up for another term when she was elected November 7th as well. American automakers are also stepping up their own sales in China. General Motors Corporation launched four new Cadillac models this week. The action is highlighting China's growing market for luxury auto-class vehicles. Luxury car sales rose almost 25% in China for most of the year, and even other automakers and their models, such as the Bentley in Britain, have also seen sales grow tremendously. Part of the reason is the new up-and-coming economic classes that are rising in China. In the world economy, China's raging economic growth is making more people both wealthier and able to buy more goods, such as luxury cars. In the United States, where American automaker sales have been falling over the years, companies like GM are in need of countries like China to provide the economic growth that is needed to sustain and expand the business. GM itself plans to spend $3 billion in China. Over this past week, political parties in Palestine drew closer to a deal that would change the political makeup in the area. Hamas committed today that it would fold its eight-month-old government if international assistance would be restored. After global aid was cut off earlier this year when Hamas came into power, getting that help back is a huge selling point for change. Hamas's prime minister, Ismail Haniyeh, announced his resignation in the next few weeks. In place, a new national unity government would take over, which would be more acceptable to international interests than Hamas, the organization responsible for the deadliest attacks against Israel. Hania's resignation is a clear sign that Hamas was incapable of running the Palestinian authority its own way in response to American and Israeli cutoff of funds and aid. The new unity government would be composed of members currently being negotiated with Mahmoud Abbas, the Palestinian president. Russia announced that it and the United States have reached an agreement dealing with the World Trade Organization and Russia's picture with the global trade body. Joining the WTO is one of Russian President Vladimir Putin's main objectives. Putin has resented the fact that Russia is the only major economy to not belong in the organization. Both the United States and Russia hope to sign a formal agreement next week at the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Gathering in Vietnam. The World Trade Organization promotes free trade among the 149 countries within its scope. And tomorrow, MSU will play their last home football game at Spartan Stadium against Minnesota and then finish up their 2006 season at Penn State the next week. And taking a look at your weather forecast, it's currently 45 degrees, but it feels like 41 and it's cloudy outside. Tonight, a low of 38 degrees with rain and thunder showers. And tomorrow, expect rain and snow showers with a high of 39 degrees. With your Friday Night Insight Weekly News
1: Recap, I'm Alex Rusciano. Have a great evening. This is MSU Today, and our guest is Dr. Arden Bement, Director of the National Science Foundation. Uh, Sir, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Start off by telling us a little bit about NSF. What's the mission? What's going on there these days?
3: Russ, uh, the National Science Foundation is... A government uh, foundation founded uh, in 1952 primarily to provide grants to universities and colleges to support fundamental research.
1: What is the state of science in the U.S. these days? I know that's kind of a large question, but where are we scientifically?
3: I think we can say that uh, we still maintain our leadership in the world. Uh, We had a clean sweep of Nobel Prizes this year, which is a testimony to that fact. Through the uh, President's announcement of his American Competitiveness Initiative, there is an expectation of a doubling of the NSF budget over the next ten years, which will give us more resources to fund more research grants over that period of time. Now you're
1: visiting MSU, among other reasons, to announce some funding from you for our National Superconducting Cyclotron Laboratory. Talk a bit about that announcement today and, and how NSF feels about the work going on at NSCL.
3: Uh, we're very excited about the work at NSCL. It's been a premier laboratory. It's one of the leading facilities in neutron science, and it's doing pathbreaking work in uh, linking neutron science with the uh, uh, processes taking place in the universe. So we feel that our investment is very well placed here.
1: What are some of the other things you've seen at MSU? Maybe talk about the state of science at Michigan State.
3: Uh, The state of science is very great. I think uh, it's probably um, not as well recognized as it should be. But um, I find that there's outstanding science going on uh, in almost every uh, field of science that we support, from the social behavioral sciences to bioscience, to uh, engineering, to math and physical science. So yeah, we're very well represented here on campus.
1: At NSF, drawing K through 12 students into science and getting them interested, I think, is important. Can you talk about that initiative?
3: Yes, we uh, we put a lot of attention in uh, trying to attract uh, younger minds into science. We do that uh, by uh, supporting Informal science and what that means is media presentations and uh, science laboratories around the country But also we're trying to get more discovery-based learning and more inquiry-based learning into the classroom To uh, stimulate interest in science and uh, we feel that will pay dividends over time
1: And what role then do the universities have in drawing the the K-12 students into science?
3: Uh, the universities uh, play a vital role um, uh, through our math and science partnerships the uh universities especially michigan state university uh engages directly with with uh, the school districts and also with teachers in trying to uh, improve math and science education in the uh, in the schools and uh, in uh, my review of the program this morning, that's it's really a successful program. The promise program here at MSU is is, is probably uh, the best or one of the best in the country.
1: What's your answer to somebody who wonders why should we as a society continue to make investments in basic science and research with so many other competing demands on the federal budget?
3: I think uh, most economists would agree that uh, investment in science. Has uh, yielded about a six percent increase in uh, in um, GDP over a long period of time. It's been a major driver of our productivity gains over time as well. So there's a real return on that investment in terms of uh, economic benefit to society, job creation. But in addition to that, there's there's also a benefit in in um, uh, meeting the uh, the needs that the general public have for understanding the world about them, understanding um, uh, uh, critical processes that are taking place and, and trying to get a handle on some of the critical needs having to do with energy sustainability, water sustainability, uh, the environment, and also uh, uh, predicting earthquakes and hurricanes. And there's also a quest for... Um, understanding uh, human values, how societies develop, uh, quality of life issues, and these are also supported by the National Science Foundation, this type of research.
1: Anything important I've left out, sir, or just some some final thoughts on NSF and or MSU?
3: Well, we have a very good partnership between NSF and MSU, and I think that partnership will only get stronger with, with time. The um, the foundation is still evolving. We're still trying to uh, stay close to the frontier, and the frontier is moving. So science is changing. The conduct of science is changing. Uh, it the uh, the tools that are now available allow us to do research at a higher level of complexity and to take on scientific problems that um, were grand challenges, our grand challenges, and begin to wrestle with them and uh, all that will will create new knowledge that will be highly uh, invaluable to to our society.
1: That's Dr. Arden Bement, director of the National Science Foundation. For much more on the web about the foundation, nsf.gov is the place. And for more MSU Today, you can visit us on the web at msutoday.com. You're listening to Exposure on 88.9 The Impact.
5: When you get up in the morning and turn on the radio, you don't want to hear those other guys talking on your way to work, do you? You don't want to hear talking, you want to hear music. So here at The Impact, we are making you a promise. We're calling it the More Music Mornings 89 Second Play.
1: This is MSU Today on Impact Radio from the campus of MSU, 89 FM The Impact, and Spartan Podcast at spartanpodcast.com. MSU Today is the program. As I mentioned, I'm Russ White, and we're happy to have really one of the fathers of Spartan Podcast and a passionate green and white alum with us, Steve Schramm. Steve, welcome to MSU Today.
4: Russ, thanks very much. It's great to be here today.
1: And it's nice to be using the beautiful studios of Your new home, Michigan Radio, which is a part of Michigan Public Media. Tell us a little bit about, first of all, what Michigan Public Media
4: is. Michigan Public Media is the uh, umbrella name for the organizations that represent Michigan Radio, which is uh, your NPR news and talk station at 91.7 out of Ann Arbor, 91.1 in Flint, and 104.1 in Grand Rapids. We also have Michigan Television, the PBS station on Channel 28 out of uh, Flint, And also we have uh, two other smaller units, uh, Michigan Productions, which is our on-campus video production unit, which captures lectures and special presentations. And we have a 24-7 cable channel called Michigan Channel, which is distributed by Comcast in Washtenaw County.
1: Well, and talk a little bit about uh, that difference between a public radio setting and a commercial radio setting as you talked about having been in both are there major differences or is a lot of it the same thing
4: well i think you use the same basic set of uh, operating ideas from a business standpoint uh, there are certain things that have to happen from the revenue and expense side, which are common to any business, whether it be broadcasting or any other entity. But I think the things that are certainly unique in public uh, broadcasting and public radio is uh, certainly the the um, mission of service, of public service. And that, in, in this station particularly, comes through with our news and information services, both the NPR offerings that we have nationally and uh, also our our dedication to our news effort as well. We have a a local news uh, staff of five uh, individuals uh, for Michigan Radio, and, and we're offering comprehensive, thoughtful uh, analysis of news, not just quick uh, ten and fifteen second sound bites. And I think that is uh, as as a total offering, uh, that is the type of attraction that uh, our our listeners have found very appealing over the course of time. So I think that's a key difference you know commercial radio unless you're an all news station doesn't really regard or treat news information very seriously or at all with resources very much anymore and if they do it's only on a very surface level because that's that's what it has come down to in the age of consolidation i think also that um we have to manage uh, our business with a lot of different constituencies here We have the constituency of being a university licensee. We have the uh, importance of making sure that uh, not only are we attracting uh, listeners to our product by offering a a good product that's compelling and uh, one that's unique, but we also want to be able to interest those listeners in becoming members of our station, which offer the financial support and in, in our operation and many other public radio operations across the country and public television as well. Membership represents over 50% of the entitled uh, entire income that you're working with. So you have those uh, constituencies. And I think in, in public broadcasting, radio and television, the listenership and the viewership takes a much more uh, serious uh, ownership of what you do and what what their interest is in what you do. So you get very specific feedback from listeners if you've said something or if you've put a news item on the air which they think is not uh, is not accurate or it goes against uh, the, the kilter of, of some type of uh, fair balance uh, coverage. So it is an interesting and passionate audience. And the way that you measure the passion, quite honestly, is not only how many uh, people you're able to serve, on a uh, documented basis, but how many of those individuals elect to become further engaged by becoming members, by, by becoming financially interested in the station.
1: So as director of Michigan Public Media, and now you are director, not interim director, you're yes. here for the long haul. What what are some of the challenges or some of the projects you're working on in the next several months or the foreseeable future
4: well we we've uh, we've been there's some projects that were already in progress when I arrived here uh, the largest uh, you know physical project we have going on is the expansion of our signal on uh, in Grand Rapids on the west coast of Michigan and we have been the last couple of years uh, building a brand new uh, tower with uh, new transmission uh, improved transmission capabilities in terms of uh, the coverage area and we will also launch the uh, Debut of uh, HD Radio for us on the west coast of Michigan. So we're exp- we're going through our final sets of uh, testing and uh, and uh, paperwork submissions to the FCC. Uh, very soon that will be done, and we will basically have uh, increased our power in that area fourfold. So we expect to be able to give a much more significant signal. And coverage not only to our core Grand Rapids area, but even expanded areas as well. So I think that's a significant project for us from a coverage standpoint. From a product standpoint, we're always looking to um, examine the program lineup that we have now, whether they are local programs or programs from NPR or American uh, public media wherever our uh, program sources are we're always looking at the mix and match of what makes the most sense in terms of uh, listener appeal and i think uh, we have a new news director Jerome Vaughn who came to us from WDET about 2 months ago and uh, Jerome i think will bring uh, additional energy and and vigor to how we cover news in our area. We're very fortunate to have a Grand Rapids-based news reporter. We have a primary uh, Detroit market news reporter as well. And then we have uh, the rest of our staff, which is assignable to whatever geography where there might be breaking news, whether that be in Flint, where we have another uh, signal, of course, or Lansing for state capital coverage, or anywhere else in southeast or southern lower Michigan. Because with the with the benefit of three signals, both Grand Rapids and Flint and Ann Arbor, we do really consider ourselves the NPR news and talk station for southern lower Michigan.
1: Steve, this is kind of a big question, but let's see where it goes. What is the state of, I guess, terrestrial broadcasting, we'll call it, because as you and I were saying off the air, right. if we had been talking three or four years ago, the word iPod probably would not have even come up, and it's arguably now the biggest threat to terrestrial radio satellite radio is very much, I, I guess, not viable yet for certain. It could right. make it. It could not make it. That's very much up in the air. But would sure. you just talk about where we are and where we're going?
4: Well, I, I have a, a lot of different personal opinions about the satellite radio issue. I think that um, without question, there are some users of satellite radio to find it to be very convenient because there's a wide variety of choices available even inside of specific music genres for example there might be four or five different jazz channels depending on your uh, your liking the same is true for classical and other types of more contemporary music so i think satellite radio probably does give a wide variety of listenership uh, a lot of choices to to work with which is fine i think that um It has also opened up the horizon on the kinds of different talk radio that is available, which is distributed in bits and pieces on terrestrial stations. But on satellite, you might have an entire dedicated channel of one particular type of talk. So satellite has brought those types of diversities. I think from a terrestrial broadcaster standpoint, and having been a terrestrial broadcaster all of my career, I guess I take some... Exception to the fact that the FCC licensed satellite broadcasters effectively with 100 channels per market of ability to program to a market, and they also have a uh, creative loophole where they can, and they do in, in some of the larger markets, do. Uh, traffic and weather reports so they've in effect uh, given two companies 100 channels of licenses in each market in the united states and to me that's uh, i don't know if that's in the best interest of of the public overall I think also that um, terrestrial broadcasters are certainly more challenged by the fact there's more competition out there, so we have to do things differently and and continue to be uh, reinventing our opportunity. And the way that that has been forwarded in our industry on the terrestrial side is with the de- with the debut of HD high definition radio, and uh, that is still yet to catch on because uh, auto manufacturers haven't found uh, a, a compelling reason yet to uh, accelerate. The installation of HD radios in all their automobiles, it's starting to come in in higher-end brands such as uh, BMWs and what have you. But you've got to recognize that most automotive manufacturers have an alliance either with XM, as General Motors does, or Sirius, as Ford and Chrysler happen to, and they do have economic benefit in terms of being able to uh, benefit from the subscription price that someone pays for satellite radio. So they're slower to get excited about HD radio because there isn't a financial model for them there. So even though HD radio is certainly going to be a superior product from a technical standpoint, and I think from my own personal listening that HD radio, if you were driving in your car and you have a a decent uh, audio system in your car, and not necessarily high-end, but a decent one, you're going to find the clarity and the definition of HD radio to be far superior to satellite. Satellite is a distribution system. It doesn't necessarily mean it is the highest end quality. To put 100 signals on one beam of satellite transmission, they have to squash it quite a bit in terms of audio range. So I think HD radio, once it has a chance to get out there and establish itself, if someone really appreciates the high-end value of the clarity of the signal, it, it will prove itself One of the things that I see on the horizon that's a challenge for satellite radio and certainly will be a challenge as as the media landscape continues to fractionalize is when uh, Wi-Fi becomes more apparent in cars and you can listen to wireless internet in your car, in which case anybody who has a URL and is streaming will be able to be listened to from around the world. And that will put a whole new layer of competition and diversity and, and different voices into mix on what your media habits going to be. But I think at the end of the day, Russ, you know, there's only so much time you can spend with all these media sources. You will still determine in your own personal habit maybe, you know, 2, 3, perhaps 4 places where you're going to spend your media time. And that probably won't change dramatically because you really can't you know, you'll you have a loyalty to two or three of these things, and that's where your interest will lie. It will always give you the option of now having many more alternate choices should you be tired of your core three or four. That's, I think, the biggest difference that I see in the future.
1: Elaborate just a little bit more on HD radio and what it is, because I think a lot of American consumers are just, or consumers are just now getting up with what HDTV is. Right. There are some differences, right? Like, for one, I don't think HD radio is ever going to be required, like the TV is, but just talk about what it is a little bit and why consumers should get excited.
4: Well, it's high-definition radio, just like you have high-definition television. The difference is, as you mentioned, is the FCC has mandated that all television stations will convert to digital transmission uh, by uh, February of 2009, so uh, your analog TV set will either have to get an adapter box, or you'll be buying a new television by February of 09, and you will have improved, uh, you know, technical quality of the of the picture, and the transmission will be in its purest digital state from the time that it is generated inside the TV studio all the way through its par- passes through the transmitter out onto the air. So, uh, digital television is already on its way in terms of mandate. That's why you're seeing all the retail stores. Uh, offer you all these great deals, especially around big sporting events. They're trying to get as many sets circulated into the population ahead of the February 09 uh, cutoff, so there isn't a great culture shock. But you watch in the next year or so, there'll even be more and more of that as that deadline is coming true. Um, on the radio side, there isn't a mandate that everyone has to uh, convert radios to digital. Um whether that will come about or not i haven't tracked enough of the legislation to see whether or not that's even being offered up in the near term i think that uh, hd radio is um is an advantage to the to the effect as we talked about earlier it's it's going to give you some additional clarity from the main channel that you normally listen to. So if you listen to Michigan radio at 91.7, we have an HD signal as well. And if you listen to that, you will notice some some distinct differences that make it even uh, more clear to you or better stereo or things of that nature. As far as uh, HD's potential, HD, as it gets uh, more circulated with more sophisticated receivers, allows a single station to have two, possibly three streams of program content. So it could be the programming you've always known from 91.7, and we could have two alternate programs, up to two alternate programs. At least right now, that's the way the technology seems to be playing out. And some stations in the larger markets are already doing that, offering an alternate view of their kind of programming, either a, uh, uh, as they say, a a cousin version of the format that they do or they they operate with a format that's entirely different just because that is a need in the marketplace. So I think HD and its... uh, Embryonic stage is trying to emulate some of the satellite radio um, uh, variety of programming model. And it's going to be a while before that gets settled in because until it finds its way into the dashboard, it really won't have that uniform acceptance and awareness that everybody will clamor to have. Uh, I, I must have an HD radio. Right now, there's so much focus on satellite radio. You see all the ads about howardstern.com and, and and the fact that you can listen to him for free for a, a trial coming up on Sirius. Uh, that's where the money is being spent. But let's remember right now the, the satellite radio model is not working financially. I was going to say, do you think
1: they will – aren't there only – Maybe fifteen million subscribers between the two. Right. Do you think they'll even make it? I realize it's just a guess, but that's certainly up in the air. We it can, is. It is. They may I, not even be around.
4: XM, I think, has you know seven, seven and a half, or eight right now, eight million subscribers. Because I was in DC a couple weeks ago, and they have a big banner on the side of their building now, seven million subscribers, but they have a lot of churn. They have people that get new cars where satellite is rolled into the deal for the first uh, twelve months of their lease, and then uh, because that's basically a twelve-month free sampler. And then they don't have uh, renewals. So they have a lot of churn. They're having to try to introduce into the market as many possible devices where you can hear their radio. And that's that's very wise. But you know, I don't know if everybody wants to continue to pay another tier, another layer of dollars for their entertainment. Uh, you know, their entertainment use every month. Let's face it: at home, you've got cell phone bills. Maybe you still have a landline bill. You certainly, most likely, have a cable bill. You probably have a high-speed bill. And uh, the question is: do you want to spend another seven to ten dollars or eleven dollars a month on a satellite radio bill? How many hours a day are you really using
1: it? Especially if these jacks are coming where your iPod is going to be easily plugged into cars. Yes, yes.
4: yes. So there's there's so many ways that uh, the media landscape is being diversified in terms of delivery systems. And I guess the question is you start putting a value, as you said, whether I'll take the time and just put my favorite music on an iPod and carry it with me wherever I go, or do I want to use the occasional use of the satellite radio system uh, but I'm paying a premium for it, or, frankly, do I still find great value in my terrestrial radio station, which uh, is is uh, is answering a lot of needs on a local front that you don't get from a music player, which is what an iPod is, and you really don't get it from satellite radio because those are all national services. They're not going to tell you likely uh, what what your weather is like. They're not going to tell you what your local news is about, if that's important to you. They may not have the the scores for the teams that you might be following locally. and So all that all that different local flavor, the things that make you unique to your community, those are lost on those national services or music players.
1: Steve Schramm, since we're on Spartan Podcast and Impact Radio at MSU, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you to reflect a little bit being a Spartan alum as you are, back to your days of you know, WMSN and Dr. Steve Edwards and
4: (laughs) Keener and just talk a little bit about your formative years and how it helped you get where you are. I will tell you, I, um, I knew I was going to Michigan State from the time I was a sophomore in high school. And in my junior year, I I attended Catholic Central in Detroit for high school. And in my junior year, we took a bus trip. We were going to the various universities and I, I signed up for the Michigan State tour. And, uh, I, uh, I knew uh, academically that there was a program there that I would enjoy, the television and radio major. Actually, I started out as a political science major. Uh, the the thought was, okay, I'm going to go be a lawyer. But uh, after about uh, three or four classes of the isms, you know, communism, socialism, whatever, it, it didn't appeal to me uh, over the long haul. And I went to what was my real passion from the outset. So I became a television and radio major. From the time I uh, decided I was going to go to Michigan State, I, I took a tour in that high school year to uh, – Michigan State Campus Radio, which was WMSN, in the Student Services Building in the lower level of the garden level of the building, and the gentleman who gave me the tour uh, was was very nice. And he was a student, and uh, at the end he said, um, "So what do you think? You gonna come here to Michigan State?" And I said, "Yes." And I said, "And someday I'm gonna run this place." And 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 I I didn't realize that those words uh, would uh, ring so true, but. The person who gave me the tour was a a gentleman by the name of Dave Logan, who has become, uh, over the decades, a a professional friend of mine. Dave, actually, interestingly enough, was the first uh, vice president programmer of XM Satellite Radio when it decided to debut. But Dave had a very illustrious career and still does uh, in in broadcasting terrestrial radio as well. So Dave, and I talked to him recently, I said, you realize that that visit, that day, inspired me to come into uh, Michigan State campus radio. And from there, when I... uh, Got my uh, dorm assignment at Bailey Hall in Brody Complex. I put my bags down. I, I don't think I was in the dorm 20 minutes. I put my bags down and went over to WBRS in Mob Brody and said, how do I sign up? And uh, certainly that started. So my first couple of years were at Brody Radio, and I became the uh, manager of McDonnell Hall Radio at WMCD. And then my senior year, I became the station manager of WMSN, and uh, all that time, I had the good fortune of working in commercial radio in Lansing at the same time. I worked uh, primarily at WVIC, and as as you mentioned, became uh, Doctor Steve Edwards, the Good Doctor Rock, from six to ten at night. <laughs> <laughs> so I, my Michigan State, uh, my Michigan State heritage and and connection means uh, very much to me. Uh, the the um, the closest friends I have in life are from my years at Michigan State, and the camaraderie and the fraternity that Campus Radio allowed me as an individual on campus allowed me to find a place for, for Steve Schram at Michigan State because we recognize, we hear this all the time, boy, Michigan State is a very big campus. It's easy to get lost, or you may not know what areas to navigate, and I've always uh, said this in any of the career talks I've done: you need to find something, you need to find an organization, you need to find some kind of volunteer effort, you need to find some type of other than an academic interest. You need to find something to do at Michigan State to become wired and to really appreciate the value of the university and all of its all the offerings that it has. And for me, that was campus radio. That was my fraternity, if you will, and those people who. Uh, were with me in that grouping uh, are still with me today. They are, as I said, the best friends that I have. And even though we aren't even in the same state for the most part, we do come together to celebrate the years that we enjoyed there. And they are the most uh, meaningful years of our life in terms of how they directed our career.
1: And yet, as we were talking off the air, too, you're about as green and white as I know, but now working here at the University of Michigan for Michigan Radio there, a, a lot of that competition is left in Breslin and Chrysler yes. and the big house and Spartan Stadium, right? Other than that, yes. it's much more of a a collaborative union. You're and, it's, finding. and it's
4: very refreshing, yeah. honestly. I, I really enjoy working for University of Michigan, I would tell you that. And I, as you said, I'm as Spartan as they come. I My... my my two sons are Michigan State graduates. My wife and I are state graduates. Our dog's name is Sparty. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how much more yeah. I can do. Um, so, but I, as I've told people, I said, you know, uh, I'm, very, I'm very proud to be working for this university as well. And there is not, there, there is a wonderful collaboration that does exist, certainly on the uh, academic unit basis. And I think there is regard and respect for among each u- university for uh, what they do and, and what they seem to excel at and i will tell you here at at michigan radio uh michigan state university is our largest client and and we we thank them for that that includes the the broad college of business that includes uh, wharton center and some occasional academic units which are promoting some of their events because of the type of coverage that and listenership that we have for example on the west side of the state where michigan state has a lot of partisans uh that that messaging that we can provide with our service uh, is of great value to them
1: Steve, anything I've left out or just some final thoughts on sort of the state of broadcasting and where we're going?
4: Well, I I think that uh, broadcasting is an interesting time because podcasts alone – Your podcast, which is, is, you know, the Spartan podcast, which is now heard around the world. And it is amazing that these search engines, you know, uh, people will come across the different uh, versions of uh, the Spartan podcast that have been done. And and the amount of downloads that have occurred is is fascinating. So I I think that the kind of uh, wonderful positive notoriety that's been built from a podcasting environment is a real positive. It has allowed, in my view, what has been a... um, I guess there there hasn't been as much growth in what we think are people who could be future broadcasters or communicators, electronic communicators. I think podcasting is reopening that door, and it's allowing uh, you know individuals and programs like yours, as well as others that you hear on podcasts, to say, well, there are there is talent that's still out there, and we can still develop them to a larger audience than just the podcast audience if we know where to find them and, and to develop those talents. So I, I think I'm excited about the fact that podcasting does exist. And I don't see it as a real threat to terrestrial broadcasting. I see it as a complement and as a niche uh, way to communicate. I, I think that terrestrial broadcasting will, um, will will still be here and will always be here. It's a vital service. And for those who are not necessarily on the on the on the bleeding edge of uh, technology adaptation or frankly are are comfortable with the traditional service that terrestrial broadcasting has supplied and still continues to supply in a quality way that this will still be a useful resource particularly public radio. I think public radio as a format nationally is now the number four format in the country. This is Arbitron's uh, information that was released not too long ago. And uh, beginning this fall in the survey that we are currently in, uh, for the first time when the survey results come out in the first quarter of next year, public radio stations will actually be listed by call letters along with their commercial peers, and that has never occurred before. Mm. So I think people will begin to see from the media side the value of public radio. And I think it's uh, it's absolutely genuine. It's, a, it's a, a national treasure in so many ways at wherever there is a public broadcasting station, both radio and television, and I'm proud to be part of it. Steve, thanks so much for visiting with us. Thank you, Russ. It's been a pleasure.
1: Steve Schramm is Director of Michigan Public Media here at the University of Michigan. And this has been MSU Today. I'm Russ White on Impact Radio from the campus of MSU, WDBM East Lansing, and Spartan Podcast at spartanpodcast.com. For a lot more of the things that Steve and his colleagues work on, michiganradio.org yes. is where you can go to find that out. And for more MSU Today, you can visit us at msutoday.com.
4: Thanks for listening to this evening's Exposure, only on 88.9 The Impact.